Want to see the world from a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. What if you took the time to really soak it in? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca, your host, and I have a very interesting guest with us this evening. But before we get started, if you want to chime in or comment on the show, you can send me an email at info at talkwithfrancesca.com. And if you want to learn more about Talk with Francesca, visit my website, talkwithfrancesca.com. And if you miss part of the show, also, you can go over to my iTunes page where you can also listen to hundreds of other episodes. This portion of Talk with Francesca is sponsored by Tobit's Landscaping. When you will only expect the very best in landscaping, they are your go-to company. All right, we are going to get going. Because of the novel coronavirus, we've been restricted to living and working inside of our homes, as we all know too well. And if we can, we might be able to go outside, walk around for a block, for a change of scenery. But many of us are confined indoors, constrained by either the illness or our vulnerability to it. And although this is incomparable, the story we're about to hear has particular resonance today. Daphne Geismer's mother and father, separated from their families, went into hiding to escape a horrific regime in the German-occupied Netherlands. An extraordinary cache of letters and documents from their ordeal reveal experiences of isolation, fear, and uncertainty. Daphne Geismer is a teacher, researcher, and book designer whose clients include many of the world's most prestigious museums. She is the author of Invisible Years, a family-collected account of separation and survival during the Holocaust in the Netherlands. And I actually am very lucky that Daphne sent me the book. It, it's it's just beautiful. It's Thank you so much, Daphne, for being with us tonight on Talk with Francesca. It's really a pleasure to have you with us. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So, And I do love your book cover. I assume you designed that yourself? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful. So, Daphne, you know, I was a little nervous actually thinking about just the very thought of even comparing the coronavirus and Frank hiding in an attic for years during World War II. I mean, we have televisions, we have cell phones, we have plenty of food and the ability to go outside. No one's trying to kill anyone, and no one is selecting you for death because of your religion. Um, you know, the virus is taking lives, but not the Nazis. There's no evil here, only tragedy. But you say, while the experience of, is of my family and the others who were persecuted across German-occupied Europe, Europe are unparalleled, their fears and struggles nonetheless anticipate aspects of our lives amid the global pandemic. They also provide a moral compass and reference point for understanding the suffering in this moment. So could you elaborate on on that? Sure. Um, And as you clearly said, and I appreciate it, it is completely incomparable. And we have to be very careful when comparing Mm. any two experiences and definitely certainly Mm. when comparing the Holocaust. So I I wouldn't even use the word comparing, Mm. but um, 
Certainly um, in these months that we've been in isolation, um, there are echoes, and because I worked on this book about my family's experiences with the core of the book being um, having eight family members in hiding, children separated from their parents in, in order to increase their chance of survival, um, this was very much on my mind as we were um, all going into isolation ourselves. And um, I was, there, there were some comparisons, I just said I wasn't going to use the word good comparisons, but some reminders um, uh, of what we're going through um, from what I had been reading in my family's letters, journals, and diaries. Um, and and so, for example, um, the fear and anxiety of becoming sick, but also not knowing how long it's going to last. Um, and um, especially in those early weeks where, you know, we thought we might, you know, it might be a couple of weeks and then it was longer and then it was longer. I had running through my head something my mother as an adolescent had written, which was, I'll, I'll just read her quote, she said, you always thought it would be just another month in hiding. If we had known it would be almost three years, it would have been terrible for us. But we believed the English or the Americans would come. You always believed it would be over soon. So this is a 12, 13, 14-year-old girl who's been separated from her parents and her two sisters and is sleeping under floorboards in a kitchen and doesn't go outside for three years. And um, they have no communication, you know, they, they aren't able to Zoom or to talk with their family who isn't with them on the telephone. Um, so, exactly. one, it puts it in incredible perspective, but also this idea that we just don't know. And somehow you can get through minute by minute or day by day, and then... For them, I mean, they, my mother, miraculously, my mother and her whole nuclear family all survived, um, you know, after three years when they were liberated, um, they were able to come back together. But as she said, had we known, it would have been impossible to endure. Right. So that's one sort of one echo that, that has been with me during this time. And um, and then um, my friends and colleagues, my daughter is 26, but my friends and colleagues who have younger children who are at home, um, it just, it seems that, um, you know, parents have the extra burden at this time of how they're going to continue the education of their children and helping their children with their classes and work that they're, they're accessing through Zoom. Um, and trying to do their own work as well. And um, again, with my mother and her sisters, who um, her, their parents were extremely concerned about their education. And when um, when uh, the, one of the first anti-Jewish decrees was that civil servants could no longer uh, could no longer. Um, keep their jobs. My grandfather ha- lost his job as a municipal pharmacist, and they had to move to another smaller house that they could then afford. And 
they had to leave their beloved Montessori school, and then there was another decree that Jewish children could no longer go to school with non-Jewish children, and they had to have sort of homemade special Jewish schools. Um, and so um, they were constantly sort of trying to keep ahead and continue the education, and they talk about how some of them were lucky enough, my mom and her sisters, in, at some points, they, they each had maybe three to six hiding addresses and families, and some helped to continue their education, others didn't. And again, my mother wrote, you know, the Nazis are trying to murder us, and, and my parents were worried about our education. Right. So, well, um, it, you know. again, that puts it in perspective. Right, right, right. You know, it's, um, and obviously they cared a great deal. You know, what I found really kind of interesting through all of this is that you learn so much about people. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to say this uh, gently, but, uh, you know, some people are worried about the silliest things, like, oh, I'm so sick of not being able to go to the gym. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, I don't know, someone someone close to me that I know um, has been sick for now um, a couple of months, and I'm thinking – and you're worried about not being able to go to the gym, you could go take a walk. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, who ca- I mean, and I'm not saying, because it has affected me, too, in ways that I didn't really realize. You know, it's like over time, it just sort of, you know, it builds up. You know, it right. really does. It, does. it really, really does build up. And, you know, and, and yes, you can be on the phone with your friends and you can do the Zoom and all that other, but it really is very different. You know, it really, mm-hmm. it, it does sort start to have sort of an air about it. And, and there is this feeling of, is this really ever going to end, you know? Right. And, um, you know, it, it, it's funny because a friend of mine, we're going to um, have dinner at an outdoor restaurant this weekend. And I made reservations. So they said they are um, charging a $5 per head um, charge just to sort of, you know, recoup some of their losses. And by the way, you can only sit for an hour and a half, you know, and, which is fine. You know, and at first I was like, Ugh. You know, and I thought to myself, how petty. This guy's been, you know, hasn't been able to have his business now for two and a half, three months. You know what I mean? Like, who cares? It's 10 bucks for two people. And, you know, okay, so fine. So he's saying he can't stay for more than an hour and a half. That's reasonable because, you know, he wants to move people in and out so that they can, you know, try to keep their business going. So it's completely understandable. And it really does shed some light on, you know, we can, I mean, some people will, get so upset about a broken fingernail and yet then there are other people that you know i mean think about it that they're living paycheck to paycheck or worse they don't even have a paycheck right you know so it's right. it's, um, it's also relative and we have to dig deeper to as you're saying you know to everything is different and to stop for a minute and maybe be more empathetic to think what is what is this other person going through compared to what i'm going through and you know and as you said some people can't you know can't you know can't go to the gym but others have family or friends who are sick and dying and you know that it i think there's a lot of anxiety about the fragility of life and so maybe we even you know make a bigger deal of the small things than because of that anxiety so how has this been for you in terms of just kind of listening to people that you know, maybe you're, you know, fussing about things that are really kind of immaterial, you know, not important. Um, or it's not that it's not important, but it's in, in the scheme of things. You know, I mean, obviously, as the Nazis tightened their grip, your family was restricted from public life. Everything from owning a bike to having a job was forbidding. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, sensing the consequences of deportation, you know, and, and your family deciding that they're going to separate to go into hiding. That's that's quite a big difference. 
Um, and it's, you know, and again, I don't know that you can compare because, you know, pain is pain, you know. and Exactly. And, I mean, that's, it, you know, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it is true, Having, you, know, you know, it's being, like. Um, a second generation uh, descendant of Holocaust survivors, like so many from my generation, you know, our parents, you know, you know, it was always like, well, your problems are not problems because we had real problems, <laughs> and um, and nothing, nothing is comparable to what they went through. But as you said, everyone's problems are their own problems, and big or small, it's what it means to you and how it feels to you and not being able to, you know, go to your work or connect with your friends, um, not, you know, not knowing when you can socialize again. You know, I, I, you know, I, I'm guessing most people, you know, you might be feeling uncomfortable with the still and the quiet and having to change the way you do everything. And that can be really difficult. And I, I don't think anyone is, saying this is this is really hard for me you know it, knowing you know thinking in comparison to you know what the, you know the real struggles that my family and so many others and all you know in a myriad of ways has have gone through throughout history and in mm-hmm. the present day so there will always be things that are far worse but you know it it's it's still hard and difficult, and that's still valid, I think. Exactly. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking to Daphne Geismar, and we are discussing how – well, I won't even <laughs> – I was about to say it, and I won't even. We're just going to take a short break, and when we come back, talk a little bit about post-traumatic stress. So, listeners, stay with us here. Don't go anywhere. More Talk with Francesca coming right up on 95.9 WATD. Are you tired of shopping for the perfect home? Your search is over. Visit 51 White Clover Trail in beautiful Plymouth. Come home to single-level living in an existing, meticulously maintained, newly built home. The front entry opens into an enormous great space with cathedral ceilings and a peekaboo water view. Over $30,000 in upgrades, including tiled shower in master. This premium lot abuts conservation land and window treatments are included. This self-contained beautiful setting surrounded by peace and tranquility with endless walking trails to bike, swim, fish, or kayak won't last. Walk to the YMCA, the Meeting House, Beth Israel Leahy, or dine at Farmer's Table. And an extra bonus, lawn care through September 2020. To view this property at 51 White Clover Trail, Plymouth, call 617-418-0243 or view on Zillow or Realtor.com. Easy to show. 51 White Clover Trail in beautiful Plymouth. Helping dogs and people with any behavior problem is what Coach Mike does best. Mike tailors each training plan individually, as each dog and their humans are individuals. Incorporating many different training techniques based on positive training methods and dog psychology, he's able to modify and change behaviors that are needed in our busy human world to ensure your dog is well-balanced and trusted. Mike has even been recommended by the vet at Marshfield Animal Hospital. Follow him at City Living Dog on all social media. Visit Mike today and you'll be on your way to having a well-behaved pet. Visit Mike today at citylivingdog.com. You'll be thrilled with the results. 
It's a loud, complicated, ever-changing world, and it's easy to get distracted or overwhelmed. A coach is a thinking partner who helps you cut through the clutter. That's where Alana Shake, trained executive coach, comes in. She can help you solve a tricky problem, get unstuck when you feel stagnant, and identify real priorities. When you're surrounded by noise and hassle, Alana works with people at all stages of life and career to help them find their own purpose and build a life that's true to that purpose. Learn more about her coaching at thisworldneedsbrave.com today. Your pets are family. Take your dog to the Dog's Den in Pembroke. Your furry friend will go from smelling crummy to yummy because Leah at the Dog's Den really cares. Whatever your pet's needs are, from dematting to extra scissoring, the Dog's Den in Pembroke has your furry friends covered. So call the Dog's Den today at 781-826-7008 or visit thedogsdengrooming.com. Now for more talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. All right, we are back, and I am speaking with Daphne Geismar, and she is, uh, Daphne, um, the book that you wrote, Invisible Years, um, I mean, this is, it's not even a book, it's really, it's a culmination of of so much. Um, it, you know, when, when people were were going through um, the Holocaust, and I mean, there's people who have definitely, you know, ended up with post-traumatic stress. So do you think there's going to be any of that? that will happen with the COVID-19? I certainly, I would think for some people, certainly, you know, and, and again, we're all, I mean, we're, when, when some people, when, a, when, a, when one or a number of people in society are sick and are dying, it, it affects all of us. And of course, it affects those more who are experiencing it themselves or their families or their friends. Um, and, you know, we, we are, understanding more viscerally the fragility of of life and um you know the, as you you said the virus doesn't discriminate um you know about about who dies and who survives but um but as we've been talking about you know some of our the 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 systems that we have in place make it easier for some than for others and um and and that affects all of us so i think um that anxiety and fear about and even guilt about who survives and who doesn't and the fragility of life has an effect and it will affect those who who are directly experiencing more but um you know this is going to change all of our all of our lives i think and it's going to keep going, I think, whether, you know, I think a lot of people have kind of dropped the the ball and, and you know, aren't paying much attention to it anymore. But, I mean, I think it's still very much here. Exactly. You, you, know? Wonder, you know? Why are restaurants opening up? And, um, you know, why can some people go back to work? Because really nothing has changed except I, it seems that, that there is a theory that wearing masks um, will, uh, you know, prevents the, the spread. And it'll be really interesting after mm, um, the right. protests that we've had yes. around the country and people being in huge crowds. And, and I was really happy to see that almost everyone in all the images and I saw in, in a protest I went to here in New Haven, everyone was wearing masks um, oh, wow. that I saw. And, um, 
And it'll be interesting in a week or two, though, to see. Right. I mean, that, that yeah. should give us some signs exactly. of whether those masks are helping. Did you say that this challenges us to follow um, your example of resistance to inhumanity, or did I read that wrong? Y- yes. Um, yeah, and um, I, it was actually, so my, my paternal grandfather um, He was murdered in Auschwitz, and um, I knew nothing about him. And uh, when I started asking my mother for materials that she had about my family's experiences, and she opened this drawer that was filled with letters and diaries and documents, there was something in it that even she and my father, who had died a few years before, didn't know was there. They had just thrown it in, and it was concealed in a nondescript envelope. And it was a, a memoir that my paternal grandfather had written while in hiding. And the two and a half months he was in hiding went from when he said goodbye to his, my father, his 13-year-old son, and uh, and then two and a half months later, um, someone had get told the Nazis. Um, that there were Jews hiding in this apartment and there was a raid and they were arrested. And um, this uh, this journal or memoir that he was writing while there ended up being returned to um, my, I assume, to my grandmother who survived. Oh, and wow. it just was, um, and that was the first time I had ever knew anything about my grandfather's experience, that I heard his voice. He meticulously documented the, German occupation, um, so it's really informative from a historical perspective, and I got a sense of this man that I knew nothing about, and um, he wrote, if I can, there's a one-sentence quote, um, uh, in the end, I hope that my lines will be read by people who will see how we struggled under terrible circumstances, and that the reader will want to take up the struggle that we have fought and experienced from the front lines for the construction of a worthwhile human society. And so that was my grandfather, Irwin. And um, my other grandfather also wrote extensively, my grandfather Chaim, about, you know, what should the world be after such a horrific, what is possible after something so horrific as as the Holocaust. And, you know, both of them had this very strong message about, um, learning this history and and not being a bystander in an effort to to move towards a more just and humane society, as you as you said. Right. So it, you, your family had this Holocaust drawer, as you said, and that the material survived is pretty remarkable. So you spent more than a decade researching and writing your book. And that's a really long time. Was that because it was painful for you to get through the material? Or what What drove you to, why did it take so long? Although, it is pretty thick. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big book. It's um, a big book. You know, yes, I felt a little I guilty say, when you're, so, I felt sorry, a little, I was just because I felt a little guilty when, when your PR person said, can I just send you a PDF? It's a big book. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, everyone's got big books. But little did I know that, you know, when I got to my mailbox that there was a notice that, you know, 
<laughs> that you know, it's, I... uh, 248 pages, and um, and there's over 60 beautiful photographs and images of artifacts as well as the text. But the reason it the reason it took so long um, is um, in 2006 the idea was planted. I, I went and I visited the church in Rotterdam where my maternal grandparents were hidden behind the organ pipes in an attic for two years and until I visited that church I, I knew very I really didn't know anything about their experience and um, and after that visit is when I returned to the United States and asked my mother you know what what more can you tell me about our family stories and then she opened this drawer that we've come to call the Holocaust drawer and it turns out my aunt in Israel her sister also had a drawer and so there suddenly was this huge family archive, but my, my grandparents, in, and so it was really in two generations, my grandparents who were in their 40s at the time, and then my parents' aunts and uncles who were adolescents and 10, 11, 12. I mean, they were really like children when they went into hiding and then like t- older teenagers, young adults when they came out. Um, and um, so my grandparents' generation, everything was in Dutch or German, so one, so one thing that had to happen is everything had to be translated before I even knew what I had because I don't speak those languages. And, um, and so there was this sort of two steps where my aunt was able to give me an idea of what the material was, and she lives in Israel and I, I live here in New Haven, Connecticut, so we were scanning things and sending them back and forth. And... Um, and then and they, everything had to be professionally translated. And, um, and then uh, there was, as I started reading their accounts, um, they, there was so much information about um, the German occupation specific to the Netherlands. Um, so the various... Um, concentration camps and transit camps and the Committee for Jewish Refugees and Jewish Council and Arthur Say's Inquart, who was appointed by Hitler to be head of the civilian administration in the Netherlands and um, the different raids and strikes and cultural organizations and all the anti-Jewish decrees. And so my family members were mentioning these people and places and names, and I thought I need to understand the context so I, then I spent quite some time reading the history, um, and there's there's not a lot in English, um, and so a lot of the information and dates, even at really reputable organizations, had conflicting information, especially specifically about dates and um, of decrees. And it wasn't until very late in the process where I was almost done with the book that I was introduced to Robert Jan van Pelt, who's a the world-renowned expert on Auschwitz, and he's he's um, Dutch. He he lives in Canada now, but um, he um, wrote a foreword, and then he elaborated on all the historical research that had been done, and and so you know it was suddenly like having this human encyclopedia of all the information I needed. Um, so things revealed themselves over time, and so not just the history, but. I found this memoir of my grandfather Irwin's in the drawer, 
And then, and, but I could find no information on who had hit him or where he was hiding. And it wasn't until nine years later that I was able to find out the name of the woman who hit him, who was Erica Heyman. And then I found her son, and he had been 16 at the time, and he's still alive and now lives in Texas. And he was able to tell me, fill in so many details. And, um, and then also maybe three to five years later, I discovered that my maternal grandfather had written 13 letters that he submitted to Yad Vashem in Israel to um, ask for recognition for those who had helped his him, he and his wife and his three daughters, and each of those letters was like a story unto themselves that told about each of their different circumstances in hiding, um, and the names and the addresses. I was able to actually create a map that's in the book as a big fold-out of the over 20 hiding addresses that my my family moved around to, and and also recognize the people who risked their lives to help and save them. Um, so I found out about a resistance worker who delivered letters in the earlier years of hiding when it was, you know, not relatively safe to, to do it. Um, it wasn't safe, but it, the last year and a half of the war it was impossible. But she delivered letters between my mother and her sisters and their parents um, now and then, and, and I have some of those letters and drawings and they're in the book and so when I found these, this one letter my mother had written to her parents it, where she's clearly this you know young girl trying to make them feel like she's okay um, I found something she had typed out she did an English translation of her Dutch of her she translated her own Dutch note that she had written as a child but it was just typed and so I said if this exists, the original must exist. So then I went back and found another cache of stuff. So, oh so things really unfolded over time, and it was many years until I had, you know, all this material and all of it translated and then had to sit there and think about, now what am I going to do with it? And then, hence, invisible years evolved and we are going to take another short break and then when we do I would like to know the significance of the book's title to you so listeners stay with us here don't go anywhere we will be right back I appreciate you hanging out with me more talk on the way here on 95.9 WATD it's vital for dogs of all ages to have an understanding of socially acceptable behavior. And the folks at A Fox and Hound Harborside understand just that. The dedicated staff is well-trained in a variety of services to enrich your pooch's well-being. A Fox and Hound Harborside offers puppy socialization and enrichment programs to help your new furry friend learn commands and leash behavior. Located on Lincoln Street in Hingham, call 781-385-7369 today. A Fox and Hound Harborside, where dogs go to find their direction. Located in Boston's North End holds one of our best-kept secrets, Antico Forno, ranked number nine of the top ten Italian restaurants around the world within the category of being one of the most authentic. With a welcoming family feel, it's hard to argue the experience you have when enjoying dinner at Antico Forno. Best known for their brick oven pizza, their world-class traditional cuisine does not fall far behind. Come enjoy dinner at Antico Forno and feel like part of the family. Open daily from 11.30 a.m. until 10 p.m. Call us today at 617 723 Three six seven three three, or visit us at anticofornoboston.com. 
Are you tired of shopping for the perfect home? Your search is over. Visit 51 White Clover Trail in beautiful Plymouth. Come home to single-level living in an existing, meticulously maintained, newly built home. The front entry opens into an enormous great space with cathedral ceilings and a peekaboo water view. Over $30,000 in upgrades, including tiled shower in master. This premium lot abuts conservation land and window treatments are included. This self-contained beautiful setting surrounded by peace and tranquility with endless walking trails to bike, swim, fish, or kayak won't last. Walk to the YMCA, the Meeting House, Beth Israel Leahy, or dine at Farmer's Table. And an extra bonus, lawn care through September 2020. To view this property at 51 White Clover Trail, Plymouth, call 617-418-0243 or view on Zillow or Realtor.com. Easy to show. 51 White Clover Trail in beautiful Plymouth. Tides is beachside dining at its best all year round. Located at the end of the Nahant Causeway, directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room in the pub can't be beat. Tide specializes in casual dining with food that's delicious, not pretentious. On a warm day, enjoy a frosty pint at their bar or their sun-drenched deck on Nahant Beach. Or enjoy an incredible meal in their dining room anytime. Tides guarantees you great atmosphere with superior service. The menu at Tides is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out the drink menu at Tides for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and their well-rounded wine list with state-of-the-art tap wines. Tides is unbeatable anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. Visit TidesNahant.com. Hey, this is James Woods, and you are listening to Talk with Francesca. On 95.9 WATD. All right. We are back, and we are talking to Daphne Geismar. Uh, welcome back, um, Daphne. Um, the You are the author of Invisible Years, and I would love to know what the significance of that title is for you. Okay. Um, so the, the initial inspiration for the title came from my mother, Miriam. She was eight years old when the Germans first occupied the Netherlands in in May of 1940. And um, and so she was a young girl when the restrictions against the Jews began. As I mentioned, her father lost her job. She couldn't go to school. She couldn't go to parks or markets. Um, Then she and all Jews had to wear the identifying Jewish star. She had to turn on her bicycle, and you know, eventually, you should, they weren't allowed to um, to socialize with non-Jews. I mean, they were really restricted from public life, and so she um, wrote that um, she said, "Your whole life was one scary time. You tried to make yourself invisible." Um, so that was the catalyst for the title, Mm -hmm. but it also um, alludes to the nearly three years that my grandparents, parents, aunts, and uncles spent in hiding um, when they literally had to be invisible or they would lose their lives, and then um, their stories were invisible to to me. My parents didn't start speaking about their experiences until maybe 50 years later, which is really common for child survivors of the Holocaust. And um, 
and it wasn't until you know I was an adult with a teenage daughter of my own that my mother opened that Holocaust drawer and the stories started to be revealed. Invisible years. That's I think that's it, it's a wonderful name. I just you know it um, it makes me wonder. Um, that parents and children didn't even know where the other was or even that they were alive, right? So they were completely invisible. And how is this similar in these extraordinary times? I mean, no one's invisible to anybody. I think that's a big, uh, that's a real difference um, now. Um, um, I mean, the combination of the fact that they were hiding and could not be revealed, it was too dangerous even for, you know, Mm. even though if somebody could have told the various family members where the other family members were hiding, it was too dangerous for them to know because if they were picked up and interrogated, then they could, you know, they might, they would have that information. And so it was better for everyone not to know. Um, Of course, we're hiding, you know, (laughs) there's there's no secrecy to our hiding. Um, And... We also, you know, we have our phones and um, our computers and um, the news 24-7. And right. they actually were not allowed to, I mean, all, all Dutch were, were forbidden from, not just Jews were forbidden from to listening to the radio. Um, oh. So they were really, um, they were really completely isolated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, quarantined because you're sick is a little bit different than, right, so... So can you describe the church attic where your grandparents were hidden? I mean, so what, how, I can't even grasp. I mean, how did they eat? How did they use the bathroom? How did they shower? How, you know, how did they communicate? How did, what was that like? Um, yeah, so how they showered is something, I, I don't know the answer to that. That's so interesting that you ask because that's something that I've wondered. Um um, perhaps so. They were hiding in a church, and um, it's called the Brightline Church in Rotterdam. And um, the story of, if I can try to really briefly tell it, the how they came to hide is kind of mir- also miraculous because they had had eight other hiding addresses, and they had to leave for various reasons of danger. And um, it was April twenty third, nineteen forty three, which was the the day that a final sweep was being made and all Jews were going to be sent, any Jew that hadn't been sent to concentration camps or transit camps were going to be picked up and sent. So they had to have a hiding place. And um, and um, they were at a colleague's house who was going to be going into hiding himself the next day. And the minister whose church was across the street came in. They had never met him before. And... Um, so the minister realized they needed a hiding place, and um, when he went to his uh, caretaker and asked the caretaker to create a space in the attic where they could at least hide for a few weeks because it was really quite horrific, and he said, but their lives are at stake and they can stay there for a few weeks. Uh, you know, anyone can bear anything when you're in that kind of dire circumstance. And so then the, the caretaker told the minister they had actually been hiding another Jewish family in the attic for a year. And the um, minister had no idea that this Jewish family was hiding in his church for a year. So at that point, they knew they were both 
they were both there to help when help was needed and um, decided they, that there was another hiding place on the opposite side of the organ pipe, so they, made, they created this second space for my grandparents to stay. And it was, it was what you, can, what you would imagine about, you know, an, an attic space. It was brick with just no floor, joists, the ceiling joists, and they put a plank down and then a bed, but you know, they had to be very careful about where they walked so they um, wouldn't fall through the ceiling. There were no windows, um, so it was dark, and there was, um, it was very hot in the summer and very cold in the winter, and um, there was a trap door um, that the caretaker created to provide access to this space and um, a ladder that they would climb up and then pull up um, when they got into the hiding place and then close the trap door and, and put a carpet over it so no light would come through. And um, so this space that the minister said that they could stay, you know, probably bare for a few weeks, they ended up being there for two years. And the, um, between the two families, the, the husband and wife, the, the minister and the caretaker, they... Um, they got food for these two families who were hiding in these attics, which was really difficult because you could only get food with ration coupons. And um, even if you had false coupons, which the underground was, would make and distribute to try to help those in hiding, um, mm-hmm. you couldn't go to one place and buy food for – there were four adults in the other hiding place, so you couldn't buy food for, you know, their families, the minister and caretaker's families, as well as six additional people because that would have caused suspicion. So they had to buy little bits of food in different places, and then, you know, they had a pot for, that they would use to for a bathroom, and the minister would um, – and his wife, you know, would empty it. And so it's just – and this is for – you know, they're they're risking their lives. They're risking the lives of their children and themselves, and they're doing all of this work to help strangers. It's really remarkable. So much suffering in you know you in learning about all of this. Did it? Do you have faith? Do you think that that, that faith is something that that the people who went through this gave up on, or ever had, or lost? I think there is so much suffering and so much evil and so much hatred, but Mm. when you think about people like the minister and the caretaker and Mm -hmm. not enough, but many others who helped even strangers, um, you know, we, I, Having gone, having had a family who's gone through this, I even say to myself, if someone came to me and said, would you hide this stranger in your house and it will put you and your child at risk, would you do it? You know, I don't know that any of us can even answer that question. And um, so the fact that um, there were so many people who helped um, makes me feel hopeful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's, well, you know, whenever I think there's, there's tragedy. You know, a mother maybe loses her child to, you know, death by suicide or, you know, someone, you know, or any number of of, of things that, that people suffer through. I think that so often the first thing they, that they lose is their faith. 
Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I was just curious about about that. Um, so right, which yeah, and so I didn't really answer that. And I think I think a lot of people did lose their faith. Yeah, that people who who did have a belief in God said, "How can there be a God? You know, when there's this much evil?" Right. Um, but then, you know, a, a lot of the um, a lot of the people who like the minister and the caretaker, there, there were a lot of people from the Dutch Reformed Church, and it was their faith in Christianity and their in Christianity that mm-hmm. um, caused them to, uh, you know, to to do what was needed and mm-hmm. what they'd been, you know, what, how they uh, interpreted. Um, their faith and what needs to be done in times as difficult as that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are going to take another short break. When we come back, I'd like you to share the story of the spoon. So listeners, stay with us here. Don't go anywhere. More talk with Francesca coming right up on 95.9 WATD. Are you looking for a beautifully landscaped lawn? From lawn maintenance to custom hardscapes, Tobin's Landscaping is the place to call. Why call Tobin's Landscaping? Because simply, they care. Their business has grown over the years by referrals alone. So if you are a property owner who demands the best service without the crazy price tag, you'll want to call Tobin's Landscaping today at 508 508- 5620823 Their promise to you is they will bring your outdoor vision to life whether it's yard cleanup or a new walkway visit them at Tobin's Landscaping LLC.com or call 508-562-0823 and wait for your neighbors to ask who is taking care of your lawn you'll be glad you called Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual on the go American fare to the north end serving breakfast lunch and dinner Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafoods, and the very popular Snickerdoodle iced coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com. Are you tired of shopping for the perfect home? Your search is over. Visit 51 White Clover Trail in beautiful Plymouth. Come home to single-level living in an existing, meticulously maintained, newly built home. The front entry opens into an enormous great space with cathedral ceilings and a peekaboo water view. Over $30,000 in upgrades, including tiled shower in master. This premium lot abuts conservation land and window treatments are included. This self-contained, beautiful setting surrounded by peace and tranquility with endless walking trails to bike, swim, fish, or kayak won't last. Walk to the YMCA, the Meeting House, Beth Israel Leahy, or dine at Farmer's Table. And an extra bonus, lawn care through September 2020. To view this property at 51 White Clover Trail, Plymouth, call 617-418-0243 or view on Zillow or Realtor.com. Easy to show. 51 White Clover Trail in beautiful Plymouth. Now for more talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. All right, we are back. Welcome back, Daphne. Thank you. So share with us us the story of the spoon. Okay. So um, my grandparents, Chaim and Fifi, had been hiding in this church um, for two years. Uh, It was April 1945. Um, they, part of the Netherlands had been, the southern part of the Netherlands had already been liberated 
but the Allies couldn't get across the Rhine. So, um, so uh, the northern and western parts were still um, under Nazi occupation, and um, so they, it was very close, though, to liberation in the end when um, the church, there was a raid on the church, and um, there was a space just below the attic, which was the organ loft, which is where the organist would sit. And, um, and uh, at times when there was nothing else going on in the church, which was rare because it was very active um, at that time, um, uh, my grandparents could leave the attic and sit in the small room right below the attic. And so sometimes they would read there or have their meals there. So that day they had um, finished their lunch, and it was the typical protocol not to leave anything out in case something happened and they quickly had to go into their hiding place. So when they finished their lunch, my grandmother was in the attic sleeping, and my grandfather put their lunch dishes back into the hiding place. So you have to carry them up a ladder, and at the top of the trap, you open the trap door, and, it, and there's a, there was a little, like, brick wall that you had to climb over to get into the rest of the attic hiding place. So he rested their dishes on this little brick wall at the top of the um, next to the trap door. Um, and then he went back down to read, and he heard footsteps in the in the church, um, and there wasn't supposed to be anything going on that day. So he looked through um, a peephole that the organist would look through and down into the nave of the church, and he saw the, the Nazi police searching throughout the church. So he, he climbed back into the hiding place, um, up the ladder and stepped over this stone wall that had uh, the dishes on it, and he, he heard a spoon rattling. Um, he had to still had to bring the ladder up, which he had to do by you know by throwing it up and catching it, and throwing it up and catching it so it wouldn't hit against the wall so that nobody would hear. He got the ladder up and he got the trap door closed um, just before the Germans were below him. Um, which, so, you know, right underneath his feet, basically. Um, and uh, he describes, in, in the book, he describes these moments in great detail, um, his fear and his panic. And then eventually the caretaker's wife came with the news that, that the police had left. Um, and when they turned on the light, they saw that, Spoon that he they, he had heard when he climbed up was right on the edge of the oh. stone wall, like oh. millimeters away from clattering to the floor above the German police heads. And had it fallen, they would have known they were up there, and they would have ceased to exist. Oh my goodness! Oh, oh, you know when you were telling us, it, it made me think about you know. For most of us today, social distancing is a means to keep ourselves safe, right, from the threat of the virus, um, just as hi uh, hiding protected your family members from death camps. But what about those who must isolate with people who harm them? You know, when I think of you were talking about the fear and the panic, 
you know, I mean, how many face abuse in homes they can't leave? And, and where, is there any similarity to that? Sadly, yes. And um, that's another yeah. you know, reading and hearing about those, you know, children especially or women, you know, many people who have are, are now trapped in homes with those who want to hurt them um, did make me think of Mm. But my aunt Judith, um, in a tra- you know tragedy upon tragedy experience that she had, um, the uh, just so, so briefly the the way the book is structured is prior to everyone going to hiding, they're they're they are um, experiencing the same thing in the world of the Netherlands is under German occupation, and so all of their voices are interwoven. But then when you get to the chapter on hiding, every single one of the eight narrators has a separate chapter because their experiences were so different from one another. And so um, this situation with Judith was horrific, whereas my uncle Natan, who eventually becomes her husband after liberation, had... A, a really wonderful experience um, filled with adventure, and he tells his story even with humor. Um, so you have these different generations and very different experiences um, that they all went through in hiding. And tragically, Judith was abused while she was in hiding. With a, she was with a large family of, um, I think it was eight, um, eight or nine people, and. They were farmers, and um, and she was. I, I, I maybe we'll leave, not go into the details. And and she she did bravely tell her story. Um, she had never told anybody. Um, these people had saved her life. It, it, they were hiding her from the Nazis, while at the same time they were abusing her. And. Um, I actually just received an, an email today. I've been oh. corresponding with the um, former um, director of the Righteous at Yad Vashem. He's the person who had received my grandfather's letters about those in hiding. And he said, sadly, you know, Judith's story is not unique and um, that, you know, there were some people, you know, just everything is not all good and all bad one way or the other. And there were some people who were hiding for the right reasons, and um, but Judith never told her parents, never told her husband, had written it all down and planned to leave that part of the story for her daughters to read after my cousins, after she died. Um, but then when I was working on this book and the Me Too movement happened and we, you know, it was suddenly there, there was this dialogue in the world about how important it is to be heard and share these stories in hopes that it can prevent it from happening again um, and that seemed the book was going to be published. She felt that, you know, that, that the full truth of the story should be told. And so, um, so that part of her experience is in the book. So uh, we definitely, we just have a few minutes left and I don't want to 
don't mean to put you in a box, but um, I know I, we were talking about hiding, and your grandparents got to see one of their daughters while the rest weren't hiding. In just a, a couple of minutes, if you can share with us that last story, and I have so many right. more questions, but I've run out. So, listeners, if you <laughs> if you have run out of time, but listeners, if you missed part of the show, make sure to go over to my iTunes page. Um, it'll be posted there tomorrow. So, just tell us how did your grandparents get to see one of their daughters? While they're running. Right. Yeah. So this was a really lo- lovely moment. Um, for a short time, my my mother sister, Hadassah, was um, staying with an amazing resistance worker and nurse named Reek Deckers, and um, she was a close friend of the Reverend Brillenbergworth and his wife um, from the Brightling Church. So um, my grandparents, Chaim and Fifi, were hiding in the church, and um, Reek took Hadassah to visit um, the church. Hadassah couldn't know that her parents were there because that would have been too dangerous. So they went for lunch, and they said, why don't you go out into the courtyard and play with the chickens and the rabbits? And so she went out um, out in the courtyard, and from that, from from the uh, vantage point of a window, second-story window in the church, her parents could see one of their daughters, uh, you know, and there were three years where they didn't see them. This was earlier on in hiding. They could see their daughter. They knew she was happy and alive, and um, it helped them get through. through. Well, Daphne Geismar, thanks so much for being on Talk with Francesca this evening. The information is just a bit amazing. So again, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Appreciate Thank you it. Okay. so much for having me. Okay. All right. It's time to wrap things up. We've got to say goodbye. I hope you enjoyed the show. It's just so fascinating. So interesting. Uh, see you next week. Same time, same place. Make it a great week. Don't miss it.